Mrs. Gumbiner was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. At her desk in the front of our fourth grade classroom, she seemed to emanate a warm shine I felt sure everyone else could see. I want you to see her too. It's 1966, and she is stylish. Her face, long dark lashes and frosting lips is framed by her hairsprayed flip. A puffy brown fullness, the ends turned up, her bangs cut straight across her brow. She's wearing a bright green A-line swing dress with a white collar and cuffs, a few buttons down the front, and white patent leather boots. <laughs> Her polished nails are bubblegum pink. I'm nine, maybe ten, and all of this is luminous to me. Okay, it's true. She's 20-some years older than I am. And yes, she's married to someone else. <laughs> but I can't help it. I love her. We all do. Because she's not only lovely to look at. She's smart and kind. Her voice is warm and welcoming. And she's fun. Her obvious pleasure in me and the others in the class make all of us love her. You love her now, too, don't you? <laughs> Our maple-topped desks were set up in rows that fanned out in rays from her central heat and light. And mine, three desks back from the front of the room, was close enough so that I knew she could see me, but also far enough back so that I could hide from her gaze. When you're 10 and you're in love, you want to be seen, and you want relief from being seen. I'd had a couple of crushes before loving Mrs. Gumbiner. There was Tommy Robbins in the second grade to whom I gave a Casper the Friendly Ghost Valentine into which I slipped a small blue heart-shaped sugar candy that had the tiny purple words, Be Mine, pressed into the heart. I didn't think beyond giving Tommy the Valentine. I was ten. So I wasn't invested in any particular response to my Casper card and candy. Perhaps I couldn't even imagine a response. Still, his reaction confused me. He ran terrified from the room. <laughs> Seriously. And there was Ricky Schiller in the third grade. To be honest, my crush on him had everything to do with proximity. He lived next door. So every now and then, he'd come over to my house, and after school, we'd swing on the swing set in our backyard, 
I was there too, on the other swing, swinging, but we never spoke. He was a man of very few words. My love for Mrs. Gumbiner was different. Leaving aside for the moment her riveting go-go boots, it was her curiosity about us that cast a kind of spell, not just on me, but on all of us. Who were we? What mattered to us? She was excited about what we could do and make together. Now, I don't mean to put a gloss on what was, no doubt, a school year much like any other school year. Elementary school classrooms are the locus of our first experiences of injustice, our first hurts and shames, and all of these make their long-lasting impressions on our hearts. But a classroom like Mrs. Gumbiner's is also the locus of our first experiences of common purpose and shared work, of personal and collective enterprise. And though we're not yet able to articulate it, we can sense, even at nine or ten, love's flow in and through what we're creating together. Of course, that year we wrote plays, poems, songs. We created a haunted house to raise money for muscular dystrophy. This was the beginning of the Jerry Lewis telethon era. We wrote rhyming protest chants and painted picket signs for a march around the school to fight dress codes that forbade girls to wear pants. That sentence sounds like bad girls wear pants. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Each of us in Mrs. Gumbiner's orbit felt they had an equal measure of her affection. And each of us glowed a bit in the field of her attentions. But here's the thing. Loving her was something we were participating in. It was somehow communal and generative. And each of us that year surpassed ourselves and surprised each other. I don't know how she got away with some of what we were up to. Surely there was a principal, a PTA, a curriculum. Surely there were rules governing what Mrs. Gumbiner could and couldn't lead us to explore or invent or produce. Excuse me, I'm looking everywhere for Tony Lee. Is he here today? No, too bad, because he's a really great teacher, and writing this brought him to mind as well. Anyway, um, so I uh, lost my place. Um, right. If there were rules, she didn't mention them. And I loved this about her, too. The sense that what we were creating together involved a bit of risk, could sometimes feel a bit unwieldy or even slightly perilous, could, occasionally did, devolve into a not always glorious mess. But more often than not, we outdid ourselves in our making and in our sharing. Together, we shone. And whatever rules were, sorry, whatever rules there were, 
It was the making and the sharing and the shining that felt right. Fifty-five years later, I remember falling in love with her. But in the many images of that busy year that I can bring to mind, like so many peel-apart color Polaroids, Mrs. Gumbiner isn't, oddly enough, the focus. This extraordinary woman, the prime mover, really, of all our activity, blends into my pictures of what we were up to every day. The cardboard sets we were building for our plays, the paper mache globes we were painting with all the world's blues and greens, the countries and oceans. We loved her, yes, but our work together, that was love's expression. There's a wonderful essay by the poet Donald Hall called The Third Thing that captures the heart of what I was first glimpsing about love all those years ago. Hall was married to the poet Jane Kenyon, and they lived together in a New Hampshire farmhouse for the two decades before Jane died. This essay is one of several remembrances he wrote for her, the great love of his life. He says of their lives together, and I quote, We did not spend our days gazing into each other's eyes. Most of the time, our gazes met and entwined as we looked at a third thing. Third things are essential to relationships. Their practices or arts or institutions or games or other human beings that provide a site of joint rapture or contentment. John Keats can be a, a third thing, he says, or the Boston Symphony Orchestra, or Dutch interiors. Monopoly can be a third thing. For many people, children are a third thing. Jane and I had no children of our own, he says. We had our cats and a dog to fuss and exclaim over. He continues, the South Danbury Christian Church became a third thing in our lives. We were both deacons, and Jane was treasurer for a dozen years, utter miscasting and a source of annual anxiety when the treasurer's report was due. I collected the offering, he says. Jane counted and banked it. For the church fair, we both cooked, and I helped with the auction, end quote. So here's what I now know. Mrs. Gumbiner understood about the third thing. She knew that love first dazzles the eyes and quickens the heart. Sure, go ahead and love me, she might have said, but it wouldn't be long before we would be creating a newspaper, say, the Murray Avenue School Gazette, for which some of us would be reporters, some of us editors, some of us cartoonists, all of us engaged if you will, in this third thing, this sight of our joint rapture and contentment, to borrow Hall's phrase. I may have loved her first in a mostly blushing, hidden way, but she knew love doesn't stay small, single-focused or private. It can't. That's not love's nature. Love's nature is flow. Love wants to share itself out, so it seeks its own enlargement in creation and community. You know this, because all the great loves of your life 
For a lover, a friend, a home, a city, a country, even ideas or values you hold dear have brought into being children, art, music, poetry, gardens, all our beautiful buildings, public parks, farmers markets, libraries, and laws. For many of us, South Church is a third thing, the site of our ongoing creation, a thing we are making together out of our love, shared vision, and mutual care. A lot's happened in my life since fourth grade. I've learned, as all of us do, that love is never without hearts hurting. As the writer Caroline Lewis says, real love knows what's on the other side of its most fulfilling, most wonderful moments. Love knows, always knows what it's getting itself into. Everything changes, nothing lasts, but love loves anyway. We take risks and try again, and sometimes, sometimes, we outdo ourselves in our making and in our sharing. And together we, for a little while, shine. And the things that we make, they too, for a little while, shine. I wish I could tell you I've kept in touch with Mrs. Gumbiner, but I was 10 when we parted. I didn't know yet how to do that, keep in touch. But I remember the last day of school, my awkward goodbye to her as I climbed onto the bus, my farewell wave from, from the window, having to stand in for all the grateful words I did not know yet how to say. And then she was gone. I've tried many times to find her. The internet is good for such things, but I haven't found her. If she's still alive, she'd be in her late 80s now. I'd say to her, though, now, if I could speak to her, you may not remember me, but I remember you. You were my first love. You showed me what true love can inspire, what it can accomplish. I became a teacher myself because of you. Dear Mrs. Gumbiner, I think now we were your third thing. And your love made us large. Your love made us shine. May it be so. May it always be so.